Thank you, Brandon. Hey, good morning, everybody. Hey, so uh, today uh, we're going to look at um, how deadly, really how toxic excuses can be for anybody that would want to be a follower of Jesus. And the unfortunate reality is that we can be very good, almost every one of us in this room, we can be very good at explaining to God why, why we can't live in His presence, why we can't do the thing that He's asking us to do, and excuses are toxic to the spiritual life precisely because they keep us from life with God. Uh, they keep us from the joy of obedience, the freedom of forgiveness, the blessing of generosity, and the deeper journey into the presence of our Savior. And it's important to know that this isn't a new problem. In other words, excuses aren't a modern problem. As we saw from the readings we just did, excuses were a problem for the people of Jesus' day as well. And so we're going to dig down deep into these verses that Brandon just read, and we're going to mine around this idea of why is it that excuses can be so toxic to our faith. So we're going to start in Luke 9, then we're going to move into Luke 14. I'm going to reread these verses. He said to another man, follow me. But that man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, the first thing we should notice about these verses is these aren't flimsy excuses. I mean, these are legitimate. These are real. In fact, these things are uh, good. They're even important. One might even say vital. And that's the point. I mean, is it wrong to want to go bury your father or your mother? I mean, of course not. I just went back to West Virginia this past summer and buried my father. And I believe Jesus was pleased with that and asked me to do that. But it becomes wrong if, if it keeps me from following Jesus. Is it wrong, you know, uh, to want to say goodbye to your family? I mean, absolutely not, right? But it becomes wrong if it keeps me from Jesus. See, Jesus wants to be clear that good things, right things, even important things can become toxic to our faith if they get in the way of following Jesus. See, Jesus is getting at a powerful lie that every one of us in this room believe from time to time. You want to know what that lie is? It's this. I cannot follow Jesus because I have too many other things to do. I cannot follow Jesus because I have too many other things to do. And what Jesus is getting at here that he needs us to understand is that there is nothing more important in our lives than following him. And the tragedy is this, that our excuses, yours and mine, will cause us to settle for far less than Jesus actually brings. So we say things like this. Well, you know, I work too much. I sleep too little. I'm a student. You know, my house isn't clean. I'm getting married. I'm saving for retirement. I'm too young. I'm too old. I mean, we can come up with a thousand reasons, right? A thousand rationalizations with why we uh, shouldn't follow Jesus. And sadly, we can do it every single day. 
There is nothing more important in your life than following Jesus. This is why Jesus taught in this way again and again and again. So there was another instance. This is, uh, instance occurs in Luke 14 where Jesus is sharing a meal with some religious leaders who very much thought they were the apple of God's eye at the expense of everyone else. In other words, when it came to the kingdom, they were in and everybody else was out. So uh, Jesus is at a meal with these teachers, and one of these teachers raises a glass and toasts. And his toast at first kind of sounds like, hey, three cheers for Jesus, you know, three cheers for God, now let's eat. But this toast was loaded. See, this toast was pregnant with meaning that we often miss. Here was his toast. He said this, blessed are those who will eat in the feast of the kingdom of God. Now, if someone today gave a toast in your home and they said, blessed are those who will receive universal health care, right? You'd know far more about them and their political persuasion than just how they felt people should come alongside other sick people, right? Listen, this is the kind of toast that turns a dinner party into a debate. So here's the background. 700 years before the life of Jesus, a prophet by the name of Isaiah imagined the great day of salvation as a feast, as a banquet. And he said that the peoples of all the nations of the world would be present, they would gather together around God's table, and that God himself would be the host of this great banquet. But over time, that vision that Isaiah first proclaimed got narrower and narrower and narrower, and it began to exclude all the nations of the world and only include those who belong to the nation of Israel. So when a glass is raised at the house of a prominent Pharisee who says, blessed are those who will eat in God's feast, in God's kingdom, a gauntlet is being thrown down. What he's saying is, he's saying, look Jesus, we know God loves us, we know we're in, but what do you have to say about everybody else? So then Jesus tells a story. And here's the story he tells this religious teacher. A certain man was preparing a great banquet, invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who'd been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I have to go see it. Please excuse me. And others said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. 
Then the master told his servant, go out into the roads and the country lanes and make them come in. Or some versions say, compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were originally invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, the key to understanding this story lies in two words that are found in the very first sentence. We're told this is going to be a great banquet and that many will come. Now, this word great in the original language is the word mega. And so it means huge, immense, vast, spectacular, overwhelming. In other words, this is going to be the banquet of all banquets. Nothing else will compare. And Jesus also says that many will be invited to this banquet. Now this word means kind of what you think, right? It means a, a great number, a crowd, a drove of people. Far more people than could fit at any traditional table. And I want you to notice that in this story, what qualifies people to attend this banquet isn't their, isn't their social status. Uh, in, in fact, uh, it's just the generosity of the host who wants his house to be full. In other words, he wants as many people to come as possible to this great banquet, this great party, this great celebration. He's just that generous. So what Jesus is doing here is he's telling a story about a God who celebrates deadbeats and dropouts and hustlers and addicts. God says, I want you at my party. I'm not worried about your background. I'm not worried about your baggage or your brokenness. Come into my home. Sit at my table. Come into my love. Come into my grace and mercy, my help, and my healing. And that is what, that call has been what our all-in journey here at Shelbyville Community Church has been all about it's been going it's been about moving outside the four walls in the same way that the servant was ordered to go outside the walls of his little village and out into the countryside god is calling us to go outside the four walls of this church into our community with the love of god and so many of you know we've already had a graduate from our women's bridge to hope uh, home, which is for women who are recovering from uh, the, a struggle with addiction. And that, that um, resident's uh, name was Shana. And so we're actually going to hear, yeah, you can clap, you can give it up for her. In fact, Shana, would you just real quickly, I think you're here, right there, I see you, stand up so everybody can see who you are. This is Shana, everybody. And so what I'd like you to do is watch the screen and just let her tell you a little bit of her story. I had surgery on my teeth, and that caused me to go into a depression and to relapse from being on pain medication in the hospital. I actually tried to commit suicide in August of 2019 which is when they filed for emergency custody and I then I really lost it. I lost my son, I lost my apartment, I lost my fiance, I had lost everything. I was homeless, I was always strung out. I overdosed once. Um, Narcan brought me back to life. 
last year in July on the 1st, I got arrested for possession of meth and possession of heroin. I stayed at 15 days in jail on two level six felonies. Um, bonded out 16 days later, I got arrested again and I spent four months in jail. During that four months in jail, I received a plea bargain of 17 years. I was one step down from a murderer. It was the worst time of my life. Um, scary. During the time, the four months I was in jail, I met Stephanie Jones and Mary Popwell. And they told me a bunch about um, how they were getting ready to open this house. I came here for all the wrong reasons. I came here because I was in a lot, facing a lot of trouble, um, not because I wanted to get well. I wanted what Sophie had. And in order to do that, I had to have a little change of heart. I wanted the relationship that she has with her boys and mine. I think one of the biggest things that had me have a change of heart was one day one of the girls here asked my mom, so how do you feel now that she was here? And her response was, I didn't sleep at night until that could have broke my heart a little bit. Recovery was the most selfishest thing. I, I know addiction was selfish, but recovery was hard. I had to just think about myself for a while, and that was hard having me have a son. We do celebrate recovery. We've done life-saving choices, battlefield of the mind, um, breaking free, the adult teen challenge, the storm inside by Sheila Walsh. That has been my all-time favorite class. It made me realize things that I was holding in anger and wasn't sure why, and I just brought it up. And so I was able to release that, and I'm afraid of that. I've never felt more free, actually. Jesus has changed my life forever. He means more to me than anything in this world. It's not institutionalized. It's it's a safe place for you to lay your head, get well, and for people to love you. Our groups, um, I got a church family. Just being able to take care of myself for a while and having a safe environment for once. During my seven months here, I've had a complete change of heart. God has changed my life forever, and I cannot wait to teach my son about it and for him to experience the things that he's done in my life to, I can't wait to witness the things he's gonna do on his. And I want you to notice something. It didn't just shape and change Shana's life, right? It shaped and changed her son's life as well. I mean, you heard her mention 17 years she was facing in prison. And um, God's been so good and so kind. So can we just show Shana one more time just some love for her courage to share her story? Listen, see, this party... This banquet that God invites people to, it's a banquet where marriages get restored. It's a banquet where hearts are healed. This is a party where addictions 
get broken. This is a feast where forgiveness is offered and received. This is a banquet where lives are restored. Hearts and minds get changed. This is a dinner party where God finds people right in the middle of their mess and invites them to begin to live their life anew out of His grace and His mercy. And by telling this story, Jesus is clear. Your qualifications don't matter. In fact, just the opposite. All they do is fuel your excuses. Many others will be invited into this banquet, but you religious teachers, you will not. So he turns what they think about heaven on its head with them. He says, look, you're the ones who are making excuses, and we're going to find out in a minute. You're the ones who don't want to be there. And so uh, the blind, the crippled, the lame, they're going to be at that banquet ahead of you. And so are all the nations of the world, just as Isaiah had originally prophesied. Um, And so we say many others are going to be invited because this is a banquet about grace and not works. Listen, one of my all-time favorite stories about a grace banquet uh, comes from the Boston Globe. This, uh, this was uh, an actual thing that happened that uh, the Boston Globe wrote about in 1990 about a most unusual wedding br- banquet. I want to I read it just as it appeared in the Globe. So it says this, Accompanied by her fiancé, a woman went to the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston and ordered a meal. The two of them poured over the menu, uh, made selections of china and silver, and pointed uh, to pictures of flower arrangements that they wanted on all the tables. They both had expensive taste. Remember, this is the early 90s, and the bill came to almost $15,000. After leaving a check for half that amount as a down payment, the couple went home to flip through books of wedding announcements. The day the announcements were supposed to hit the mailbox, the potential groom got cold feet. I'm just not sure, he said. It's a big commitment. Let's think about this a little bit longer. So when his angry fiancé returned to the Hyatt to cancel the banquet, the events manager couldn't have been more understanding. The same thing happened to me, honey, she said, and told the story of her own broken engagement. But about the refund, she had bad news. The contract is binding. You're only uh, entitled to $1,500 back or 10%. So you have two options. You can forfeit the rest of your down payment, or you can go ahead with the banquet. I'm, I'm sorry, honey, I really am. Well, it seemed crazy, but the more the jilted bride thought about it, the more she liked the idea of going ahead with the party. Not a wedding banquet, mind you, but a big blowout. Because, see, 10 years before, this same woman had been living in a homeless shelter. She had gotten back on her feet, found a good job, and set aside a sizable nest egg. So now she had this idea about using some of her savings to treat the down and outs of Boston to a night out on the town. And so it was that in June of 1990, the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston hosted a party such as it had never seen before. The hostess changed the menu to boneless chicken in order of the groom, she said, and sent out invitations to rescue missions and homeless shelters. 
And so that warm summer night, people who, who were used to peeling half-gnawed pizza off cardboard dined instead on chicken cordon bleu. Hyatt waiters in tuxedos served hors d'oeuvres to senior citizens propped up by crutches and aluminum walkers. Bag ladies, vagrants, and addicts took one night off from the hard life on the sidewalks outside and instead sipped champagne, ate chocolate wedding cake, and danced to big band melodies late into the night. You know what makes a story like that so beautiful? Because it's a story about grace. And because that story echoes the very, very invitation that we're asked to extend and continue to extend to uh, those who live in our own community. Now, there's another important piece to understand about this story that Jesus tells about a banquet. So I want to uh, walk you through just some key details to help us understand that story a little bit better. In that day, invitations to a party were sent out far in advance so that the host could make sure, you know, there were no food trucks, deliveries were uncertain. So if someone was going to try to accumulate a lot of food and wine, that would take months to do it. So an invitation was sent out months in advance, and then on the day of the banquet, uh, the host would send out his servant to go all through the small village or the small community where this was going to, incur, going to occur and just remind everybody, hey, everything's ready. You can come to the party now. And it would have been considered extremely rude and obnoxious if you had sent in an invitation to this host party to decline at the last minute. It would have been unthinkable to do that. I mean, listen, if, if you were, you know, um, if you were shot, if you were hurt, if you got sick at the last minute, heck, if you got maimed by a cougar on the way to the event, you would have still done everything you could to make it to this banquet. And so the excuses that Jesus offers or tells that people had in this story are meant to sound petty and offensive to the host. And I want to help you understand how that's true. So the first excuse was this. I just bought a field. I have to go and see it. Now listen, in that day, no one would have ever dreamed of buying a field unless they had investigated every nook and cranny in that field. You'd, the reason you would buy a field in that day was for agricultural purposes. So if you weren't convinced that that field could grow a great crop, it would be ludicrous to buy it. So this is a laughable excuse. I mean, and think about it this way. How many of you would, would buy a home that you're going to live in for the next 30 years and make payments on that you've never even seen or been inside? I mean, it's laughable, right? Nobody does that, or at least almost nobody does that. And the second excuse is just as laughable. This person says, I just bought five oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Now listen, the people of Jesus' day knew that a team of oxen were worthless if they didn't pull together and they didn't pull evenly. 
So it would be unthinkable for anybody to buy a team of oxen that they hadn't checked them out first. I mean, imagine going to a car dealership and, and just saying, hey, just bring me out a car, blindfold me, and I'll pay you whatever you want for it, right? If you're going to buy some transportation, you're going you're to inspect that before you make a commitment, right? So it's becoming clear that these people aren't just making flimsy excuses. They don't want to be there. They don't want to be there. And so the third excuse, this guy says, I just got married and I can't come. Now, if you look at the original language here, this guy's just being rude. I mean, he's, he is essentially saying, I don't want to have anything to do with your party and I just got married. Notice in English, the others are at least polite. They say, please excuse me. But you don't see this here because this is meant to be understood as a rude and a crass excuse. And listen, it's not that any of these things are bad, right? They're not evil. It's not evil to go buy a team of oxen. You know, it's not like they're saying, hey, I can't come because I have to rob a bank. Or it's not like they're saying, hey, I can't come because I've got a drug deal I have to pull off. They're not saying, hey, I can't come because I'm a Bears fan and I have to go to the game, you know, today. I mean, they're not giving evil reasons for not coming to God, right? I mean, these people aren't dissing Jesus in favor of burglary, theft, or drug dealing. They're just daily life excuses because everybody buys stuff. Almost everybody gets married. I mean, these things happen every single day. And so the reality for you and me is we may not be leaving here this morning to stare at a field, but isn't it true that some of us are here and we're just controlled by our stuff, our resources, our fields? And we believe that more stuff, bigger fields, more property will lead to happiness and wholeness. And it's causing us to rot from the inside out. You may not be leaving here to go test a team of oxen, but isn't it true that some of us in this room are driven by a need to perform and succeed? I mean, some of us in this very room are or live with a constant fear of failure or of being inadequate or of disappointing someone. And so a few of us will never get around in this very room to following Jesus because we have an audience to win and we have something to prove to people whose opinion shouldn't even matter in the first place. You may not be leaving here to get married, but isn't it true that we sometimes want to treat romantic relationships like they're the things that are going to save us and make us whole? So when Jerry Maguire says to his girlfriend or his wife, and he says, you complete me, do you know what he's saying? He's saying, you save me, you make me whole. I need you to live. Isn't it true that even though you may not be leaving here to get married, that you sometimes want to substitute a romantic relationship in a place where you should only be putting Jesus? 
I love how uh, writer and pastor John Piper summarizes this story. I think it's so powerful what he says. So we've actually put this on a slide behind me. Here's what John Piper says about this story. He says, for all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet of his love, it's a piece of land. It's a yoke of oxen. It's a wife. The greatest adversary to the love of God is not an enemy, but his gifts, the things he gives us. In other words, we sometimes want to love the gifts that God gives instead of the God who gives them. Let's say it another way. Sometimes we want to love the hands of God. We, we want to love what God can do for us. And we don't want to drink in the face of God or the presence of God. And then Jesus finishes this story with this surprise twist. He says this, The servant came back and reported this to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done. I want to stop there and pause. Why could Jesus say that had been done? Because that was what Jesus himself was there to do. Jesus was already doing that mission. Jesus is meant to be understood as the servant in this very story, sent out by his heavenly Father to proclaim the good news of the great feast, the great banquet, the the day of salvation of God. The very same feast that Isaiah saw and prophesied some 700 years before Jesus. But the servant goes on and says to the master, I've done that, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out into the country roads. In other words, move beyond the four walls of the city and keep going out. And, and compel people to come in. Now, how do you... So he's saying, look, go outside the gates of the city. The invitation to life with God is so important, it has to go beyond the four walls of a city. And it has to go beyond these four walls as well. Like them, we have to go out. And we have to compel people to come in. Well, how do you do that? How do you compel people to come in? Well, you love them. You don't just tell them that Jesus loves them. You show them. You serve them. You roll up your sleeves and you become a servant in Jesus' name. And that means we have to be willing as followers of Jesus to offer up the very best of our time, our talents, and our treasures to God. Vitally, vitally important. And this is a story that ends right where it started with a gracious host a loving invitation, and a desire that a host's house be full. And here's the good news for you and me. You know what that means? It means that he wants you there. It means that he wants me there at that banquet. It means that he wants people who today, right now, are living far outside the presence of of God. He wants them there too. So what is God asking you to do to make sure that we compel 
our community to be present at this banquet? Are you willing to go, to go all in to compel people to come in? Or are you just going to offer God a bunch of excuses? We just settle when we offer excuses. You know, every once in a while, I told you one that I just love story. I'm going to tell you a second one. Uh, a story that becomes so powerful. And I, the reason I believe these stories become so powerful is because they point us to the grace and the mercy of our Jesus. So here's a story that does that. The small house was simple but adequate. It consisted of one large room on a dusty street. Its red-tiled roof was one of many in this poor neighborhood on the outskirts of a Brazilian village. Maria and her daughter Christina had done what they could to add color to the gray walls and warmth to the hard dirt floor. An old calendar, a faded photograph of a relative, a wooden crucifix. Maria's husband had died when Christina was an infant. So the young mother, stubbornly refusing opportunities to remarry, got a job and set out to raise her young daughter alone. And now, 15 years later, the worst years were over. Though Maria's salary as a maid afforded few luxuries, it was still reliable and it did provide them with enough food and clothing. And now Christina was even old enough to get a job to help out. Some said Christina got her independence from her mother. She spoke often of going to the city, the big city, she meant. She dreamed of trusted trading her dusty neighborhood for exciting avenues and bright city life and nightlife. Just the thought of this horrified her mother. Maria was always quick to remind Christina of the harshness of the streets. People don't know you there. Jobs are scarce and life is cruel. And besides, if you went there, what would you do for a living? Maria knew exactly what Christina would do or would have to do for a living. That's why her heart broke when she awoke one morning to find her daughter's bed empty. Maria knew immediately where her daughter had gone. She also knew immediately what she must do to find her. She quickly threw some clothes in a bag, gathered up all her money, and ran out of the house. On her way to the bus stop, she entered a drugstore to get one last thing. Pictures. She sat in the photograph booth, closed the curtain, spent all that she dared uh, on pictures of herself. With the purse full of small black and white photos, she boarded the next bus to Rio de Janeiro. Maria knew Christina had no way of earning money, so she knew right where to look. Bars, hotels, nightclubs, any place with a reputation for streetwalkers or prostitutes. She went to the mall, and at each place, she left her picture taped on a bathroom mirror, tacked to a hotel bulletin board, fastened to a corner phone booth, and on the back of each photo, she wrote a note, always the same. But it wasn't too long before both the money and the pictures ran out and Maria had to go home. So the weary mother wept as the bus began its long journey back to her small village without her daughter. 
It was a few weeks later that young Christina descended the hotel stairs. Her young face was now worn and tired. Her brown eyes no longer flickered with youth, but of pain and fear. Her dream of life in the city had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she'd longed to trade these countless beds in the city for the one bed she had as a little girl growing up. And yet, that small village seemed in so many ways just too far away. As she reached the bottom of the stairs, her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again, and there, on the lobby mirror, was a small picture of her mother. Christina's eyes burned, and her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed the small photo. Written on the back was this compelling invitation. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, It doesn't matter. Please come home. And so she did. This is the invitation held out by the gospel of our Jesus. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've become. Just come home. And that grace and mercy, people respond to it every single day in all kinds of ways. And Jesus is asking you and I that as we follow him, he is asking us to continue to extend that same invitation, not just to the people inside of our church, but to the people outside outside of our church in fact we're to compel them to come in and again there's only one way to do that you don't do that by preaching at people you do that by loving and serving people and meeting them right in the middle of their mess right in the middle of their need and after all that's exactly what jesus did for me and for you jesus met you and right in the middle of your mess And he is asking you, and he's asking me, he's asking us together to compel people outside of Orphor Walls to come and live out of his grace and his mercy today. Listen, you and I have the unspeakable privilege of being instruments of the grace of Jesus in Shelbyville, Indiana. We have the opportunity today not just to store up treasures for ourselves, but to store up treasures in heaven and even better, to use our resources in such a way that lives are changed and and that those changes change the trajectories of entire families. And just to do that one at a time, again and again and again until our community is a better, safer place to live for everybody. So here's what I want you to do. Everybody in the room, you should find, you should have been handed one of these, or uh, if you don't, raise your hand. We'll make sure you get one. I want everybody to open this up. And there on the, right on that um, right-hand side of the page, you're going to notice 
Uh, it says Commitment Sunday, November 21st, 2021. Now, if you're super observant and really paying attention, you're going to figure out that that's today's day, right? So, uh, listen, I'm asking everyone in the room to fill this out. And if, if you have not a penny to your name and you can't afford to give one red cent... What I'd like you to, to write down as your commitment is in where that dollar sign is, just write down that you will pray. So everybody has something to offer. So obviously we're asking for some contact info. Then you see a blue box and it says, I want to make an all-in commitment. At this point, that is a 12-month commitment. So there's a fairly large group of people who for the past year have been giving to All In. My family is privileged to be one of those. And so if you have already been giving to All In for 12 months, this is an opportunity for you to do one of three things. First, it's an opportunity for you to say, hey, uh, life you know, things didn't happen the way I thought they were going to be. Maybe I, I lost my job. I didn't intend for that to happen. So I need to revise my commitment for the next 12 months down. That's awesome. There's grace there. Some of us, you know, life's treated us about what we expected. So we, we say, no, I can stand pat for another 12 months. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to continue to give what I've already been giving in the last year. That's awesome. But for some of us, life's been better to us, and we can actually afford to increase that commitment for this final year. And so you can indicate that. This is an also an opportunity for you if you weren't here last year or you weren't able to make a commitment last year. This is an opportunity for you to make a new commitment. Even if it's only a prayer commitment, I would challenge and encourage you because one of our goals here is 100% participation. 100% of us offering something that begins with a baseline of prayer. Um, so then you see a white box where you can indicate that you've already been giving for the first year, and then you can see the black box where you're uh, confirming something. There's even a box you can check if you have more questions about All In and the specifics of how we're using that money. We would be happy uh, to sit down with you and uh, answer any questions that you have. So here's how we're going to do this. I'm going to ask everyone to fill this out right now while we're worshiping. And then, as an act of worship, we're going we're gonna to fold this up so that it's private and your nosy neighbors don't see what you just did, right? And then you can walk that up during worship. And as an act of worship, I'm going to ask you to lay this card here, it's a stage, but for our purposes today, we're going to call it an altar. And we're just going to invite you to lay that commitment at the altar. And you're going to notice that as we're singing, we're singing, I lay down, I lay down, I lay down. And he, he's also going to sing, um, I rejoice in the simple gospel. I rejoice in the simple gospel. And what this is, what we're doing today, is we're giving you an opportunity not only to rejoice in the gospel, but to invest in the gospel as an act of worship. 
And so will you do that as we sing? And so the altar is open. I'm going to invite you to fill those out and then come forward as an act of worship to our God. Let's stand. Well, no, you need to sit in order to fill out your card. Sorry, sorry for the mixed message there. Uh, so yeah, just um, sit as we begin to worship.